I spent in Ireland, I had some opportunity to kind of research and look about my family name, Carney. And I, I learned a couple of different things. I learned that the name originally meant warlike. How about that? Warlike. Uh, and then I, my family ancestors likely originated in the County Mayo on the west coast of, of, uh, of Ireland. So maybe that's why I prefer mayonnaise over Miracle Whip. I don't know. Now, I bet a lot of you could share about your heritage. Some of you probably have a whole lot more information, detailed histories on your families than I do. There are many people that have taken up uh, kind of the, the hobby and the pursuit of genealogy, trying to figure out uh, where their family came from with lots of diligence and enthusiasm. And, you know, why do, why do people do that? You ever think about that? Some people spend a lot of time and resources trying to learn exactly who their ancestors were. Uh, where does that pressing need come from? And I was thinking about that, and I wonder if it might be tied into our need to feel valuable in this world. We, we need to feel like we're somebody. And so we want to look into our past and maybe find out, am I somebody? Were my ancestors somebody? We have a desire to leave a, a mark, if you will, on history. Uh, maybe because it's we want our life to count for something. So if we know what lies in the past, perhaps then that can comfort us when we wonder if our lives have lasting meaning and influence now. I'm calling the message today, are you wasting your life? What a terrible thought to, to have. I'm, I'm wasting my life. Are you? We're going to be looking into 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can take that out. We're going to be there in just a moment. But kind of with these ideas in mind, let me ask you, what is it what is it that makes your life meaningful? When you consider what you'll be remembered for, what is it that comes to mind? Most of us have lived relatively obscure lives. Really, there are really, in the big scheme of things, very few people in history who could answer this question by citing all the great and wonderful things that they should be remembered for. The vast majority of us are just people, right? Ordinary folk who've done perhaps nothing super remarkable that others would consider heroic or worthy of being remembered for. We're just kind of average Joes and Janes, if you will. You know, as I look back through, through the past, I, sometimes I marvel at how people have come through such things as the, the Great Depression or I've talked to, to folks that have gone off to war, and they've experienced terrible things, and then they've come back and had to learn how to fit back into regular society again. But often when I ask those people, they, they don't mark those experiences as something great or tremendous accomplishments. Many of them don't count them as the things that give their life meaning. But when it comes down to it, I think everyone wants their life to count for something. We all want to make a difference in this world. We all want to know that we're not just wasting our lives and squandering the chances 
that we've been given in this life. So in our scripture passage today, the Apostle Paul has some things to say to the Christians in Corinth about what it is that makes life meaningful. And because he's saying it to the Corinthians, he's saying it to us as well. And he does this by reminding both those original readers and us of three things that all Christians possess. If you're a follower of Jesus, these are three things that you possess today that give your life value and meaning. And so I want to take a look at those things. But before we do that, I want to read our passage today. I'd like to invite you to read with me. These are the words of the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. Let's read this together. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen, the word of God. How about that last phrase there, guiltless? You ever think about that? That when you stand before the, the throne of God, that you'll be standing there guiltless? That's a pretty heavy thought, isn't it? Well, let's kind of explore this idea. The first thing to note that we possess, the truth that gives real meaning to life is that God has given us the blessing of a different value system. A different value system. Notice the the phrases he uses in verse four through nine. He talks about grace given you in Christ Jesus. He says that you have been enriched in every way. You do not lack any spiritual gift. He says he will keep you strong to the end and that you will be blameless or guiltless in the version we just read. And that God has called you into fellowship with his son. So here, Paul is reminding the Christians in Corinth of all the things that God has done for them. The temptation as we kind of read the opening of a letter, it's just to kind of gloss over that and say, oh, okay, that's nice. Let's get to the meat of this, of this letter. But it's important to know a few things about the people that Paul was writing to there in Corinth as he talks about all of these deep gifts that God has poured into them so that they can have this different value system. These people there in Corinth, they, they weren't the greatest folks. You realize that? If we read through the the rest of the letter to the Corinthians, we find out that they had all kinds of flaws and weaknesses and moral failures. We know from the rest of the letter that the Corinth church was divided. It was a fighting bunch of folks. Fights going on in the church. Fights over some serious things and some very trivial things. There were people there that were better off financially and they were eating in front of poor people who literally had no food and they didn't care. There were people with 
serious moral failings in the church. There was one man that was living with his stepmother and everybody in the church thought it was just great. No one had a problem with the idea that he had uh, stolen his father's wife and was living outside of marriage with her. We know that this church had a, a problem of understanding that their standards were supposed to be fundamentally different than those of the people around them who were not followers of Christ. And so in the first three verses of this letter, Paul reminds them that they're supposed to be holy, set apart, that they're supposed to be radically different than all of the other people in the culture because they follow Jesus Christ. And then in the six verses that we're looking at this morning, Paul begins to remind them, and as I said, remind us as well, that because of what God has given us in Jesus, that we too are supposed to hold different values, live according to a different value system than the people in our world who do not follow Christ. We're supposed to cherish different things than those who don't know Jesus. I, I read a story about a, a woman who many years ago lived in the deep south. She had a very close relationship with her childhood sweetheart. And, and so they grew up and then they were married and they lived happily together for, for many, many years. And then sadly, one day, her husband passed away. And this woman couldn't bear to part with her husband. And so she decided to have him embalmed and put in a chair and seated in a glass case and placed immediately inside the front door of their large plantation home. And so every day as she walked through the door, in or out, she would greet him. Hi, John. How are you? I love you. And then she would go about her business. A little bit strange, isn't it? Well, a year or so later, she had the opportunity to take a trip to Europe. And while she was traveling in Europe, she met a very fine American gentleman who swept her off her feet and convinced her to marry him. And they were wed right there in Europe, and then after an extended honeymoon, they began their journey back to the United States. Now, this lady had said nothing to her new husband about John back home in the glass case in the living room. And so as they approached the house, the new husband was thinking, oh, this is my moment. I'm going to lift my new bride, carry her over the flesh threshold into the house where we're going to spend our rest of our life together, this wonderful place where we'll live together for the rest of our lives. And so he picked her up, he had her in her arms and he kind of bumped the front door open and swung open into that great house. And what did he see but right there, John. <laughs> Dead former husband John. And he almost dropped the woman. And her new husband said, who is that? Of course, she said, that is John, my first husband. And her husband answered and said, well, he's not your husband anymore. He's dead and so immediately he put his wife down and he went outside and he dug a hole and he buried the man, glass case and all. End of story. Well, that's an odd and a kind of a humorous story, but do you realize, friends, that we Christians sometimes do the very same thing 
as that lady in a manner of speaking. At some point in our life in the past, we realized that our life was being wasted if we didn't have a right relationship with God. And so we exchanged a pointless life for a life that is enriched by God. We were born again, buried in the watery grave of baptism and raised to walk in newness of life, a life with God. And so we exchanged that pointless existence for one with great meaning. But then, what do we do? Well, sometimes we hold on to some of the old stuff, right? Our we measure our standards of success by maybe some of those old standards. In essence, we keep our past enshrined in a glass case and kind of wistfully look back on it from time to time. Friends, Paul's message here is that we're not a part of that kind of value system. We have left it behind We have traded in the perishable for the imperishable, the temporary for the permanent. So why, why, why do we want to hold on to the things that we know aren't worth anything in the first place? Let's look back at verse 7 of our text when Paul said, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that means? That means we have everything we need, everything we need in God's new value system. There's nothing in this world that can provide us with what we need when we are a part of God's new value system. So we don't need to hold on to the remnants of our past as we wait for Jesus. He's provided us We're not lacking in any gift. I hope you believe that, and I hope that, if you're not living that, that you begin today to put aside that junk from the past. If it means going out in the backyard and digging a hole and putting it in it and covering it up and say, that's not who I am anymore, then maybe we need to do that. Well, Not only has God given us the blessing of a new value system, but secondly, Paul says that we have been given God's grace. God has given us his abundant grace. Look at verse four. Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now remember, these are people that that aren't very nice. They don't behave well. They don't play well together at times. And so Paul is reminding them of who they are even as they act like somebody that they shouldn't be. He wants them to remember that they are walking, living in God's abundant grace. Friends, understanding God's grace, this gift that he's given us, is extremely important. It is imperative for those who would follow Jesus Especially when we ask ourselves if our lives really matter. Am I wasting my life? Does my life matter, matter in the big scheme of things? Well, if we understand God's grace, then it sure, sure does. Not long ago, I saw a fellow preaching on late night TV as I was sleepless and turned the TV on one night. And the guy was either seriously mixed up 
on this subject, or he was deliberately misleading people for personal gain. But he started by, by saying that poverty is a spiritual problem and not a material problem. He even quoted Jesus' words in Luke 4.18 when Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And then his application from that verse, when Jesus is announcing who he is for the first time, really, to the world, his application of that is, you know what good news to a poor man is? That he doesn't have to be poor anymore. And then he went on to explain for the rest of his sermon how if you're right with God, that money won't ever be a problem and you'll just be really happy and rich. He's either misled or he's a liar. Now, that TV preacher might have a winning smile and really nice suits, the nationwide following, but I believe his analysis of Jesus' teaching is way off because the good news that Jesus was bringing to the poor, to the oppressed, is that he can give them something so great that money, material wealth, things will seem worthless. You see, friends, that is God's grace. It's imperative that we understand the difference between religion and Christianity. Now, somebody might say, well, Christianity is a kind of religion, and that's true to a very limited extent, but ultimately, Christianity and religion are quite different. So the next time somebody asks you, are you religious? Here's what I want you to say. No, not religious at all. But I do follow Jesus. I am a Christian. There's a great little book that you might want to grab a hold of uh, by a man by the name of Fritz, Fritz Ridenauer. And it's called How to Be a Christian Without Being Re Religious. I recommend it to you. And in the book, he talks about this difference. And he says, Christianity is more than a religion because all religions have one basic characteristic. Its followers are trying to reach God, find God, please God through their own efforts. Religions, he writes, reach up toward God. But Christianity, he says, is God reaching down to us. Isn't that a great picture? Christianity claims that men have not found God, but that God has found us. So to practice Christianity is merely to respond to what God has done and is doing in our life. Religion is people trying to win God's favor, to become acceptable to God. But Christianity is based on the fact that God accepts us even when we are not acceptable to him. That's where God's grace comes in. That grace that Paul writes about that we possess when we come into God's kingdom. Maybe a, a way to think about this a little differently is to, to think about this like, uh, let's, let's say there's, there's two ways to reach heaven. All right, let's think about this. I want you to picture two lines of people, all right? all leading up to the gate of heaven. One line is filled with people who are trying and trying to be pleasing to God. Friends, that's the religion line. That's the line for people who think they can be good enough to please God. 
And really, getting into heaven in that line is a, a theoretical possibility only. Because reality is you got to bat a thousand to get to that line and get in. So technically, it's possible to get into heaven through that, that line and that gate, but you'd have to be what? Perfect, without a flaw. Never having committed one sin. Never one selfish act. Never one lustful thought. Never done the slightest thing wrong. And there are people trudging along through life in that line, thinking that perhaps miraculously that when they get to the front of the line, the standards will be lowered. Or that they might somehow live up to them when they get to the gate. Friends, that is religion. Every religion that has ever existed falls into that category in some way. And the problem is the requirements are too tough. And people only fool themselves into thinking that they might be good enough. Now, I want you to visualize a second line of people heading up towards heaven. And that line is for those who understand the grace of Jesus Christ. In essence, as they stand in line, they have a ticket. You ever been to Disneyland? You have the fast pass. And you're going by and all the people in line, you think suckers. <laughs> as you cruise by. Kind of like that, only we're not thinking suckers, all right? But it's kind of like that. You've got the fast pass. But here's the deal, folks. That pass is marked with some words. And those words are written in the blood of Jesus Christ. And they say, I died for this person. Your name is written there in the blood of Jesus Christ. I died for him, for her. And I want you to understand, that is what grace is like. And that, that pass is available. It is available to anyone who would ask for it. You see, that is the difference between religion and Christianity. Now, make no mistake, it's not a, a free pass, a get-out-of-jail-free card. Yes, the grace is given freely. And it is abundant. And it is amazing. But it's also expensive. That fast pass costs extra. And this pass into heaven is the most expensive pass ever purchased because it's purchased with the blood of Jesus. But guess what? That grace, it changes us. It changes us so that we're not walking in the line saying, suckers, too bad for you. The grace changes us. Look at Paul's words in verse five. He says that in every way, not some ways. In every way, Christians, you were enriched in him, in Jesus, in all speech, in all knowledge. Friends, as 
we walk in his grace, our lives are changed. Our lifestyle is changed. Our speech is changed. The things that we know about, care about, the things we pursue in this life are changed. And this change comes about as he enriches us. Not with money, not with stuff, but with his grace. Abundant and flowing freely. Very simply, that is the picture of God's grace. That is what we have been given. That's what Paul was reminding the Corinthians. In essence, he's saying, you belong to Jesus, so start acting like it. Start living like it. Because you walk in his abundant grace. And so God has given us a different value system. He's also given us his abundant grace. And then third, Paul reminds the Christians, the, the Christians in Corinth and us of the implications. The implications of living in that drift of grace. Owning God's gift of grace determines the course we set for our lives. He gives us a new life course. A new life course. So how does this fit in with that question of exactly what makes our life meaningful? Am I wasting my life? Is there meaning in my life? What should this matter to us when we ask, are we wasting our lives? Well, for one, it matters because it determines the course that we set for our lives. You see, the person who is driven by the world's standards of meaning and success will probably be disappointed since so very few leave behind those great legacies, as we mentioned at the beginning. Following the world's value system and its course is going to lead to a life of continuing frustration and disappointment because we never quite get there. But, the person who says, God has given me the gift of salvation, therefore I am free to go from there, that person is going to set different goals. They're going to measure their success by a different standard. Their life course is going to follow the path that God has made clear, the trail that Jesus has blazed for us. Years ago, the story goes, in Manchester, England, there lived a, a simple factory worker. One day, he was promoted to a very responsible job within the factory. The whistle that marked the beginning and the end of the workday was operated by a clock. And it was his job to make sure that clock was very, very accurate. And so early every morning on his way to work, he had to get there before everybody else did to make sure the clock was set perfectly for the whistle to blow. And every morning he would walk by the window of a clock shop. And in the window of the clock shop sat a very ornate, beautiful, expensive clock. And each morning he would stop, look through the window, and set his, clock, his watch carefully by that beautiful clock in the window. And then when he arrived at work, he would make sure that the clock at work and the factory whistle were set to that right time. He was fastidious about this. It was an important task. 
Well, after a while, the owner of the clock shop began to notice this guy every morning stopping by the window, staring through the window on his way to work. And so one morning, he came out and asked him what he was doing. The guy explained that he worked at the factory down the street and that the clock was uh, his responsibility to, to maintain. And so every morning, he would set his watch by that very fine clock sitting in the window of your shop so that the factory whistle would always blow on time. The owner began to laugh. And he said, friend, all this time, all this time I've been setting that clock by your factory whistle. <laughs> you see, friends, our perspective on success and meaning depends upon what we use to measure it. What is our standard? What are we setting our watch by? You see, God's idea of success is different than the world's standards. We're called to set a different life course according to God's standard. And God's standard is always true. It's always right. It's always on time. It does not vary. And it can always be trusted. We don't have to worry about who set that thing because God set it up. And so may, friends, may we set our course by God's standard, not by any other standard, not by the standard of our feelings, not by the standard that just seems right because a lot of other people think it or do it. Those are faulty standards. May we set our standards, our course, by God's standard. Look at verses 7 and 8 of our text. Paul reminds us, You are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we have everything we need We've got it all. All we have to do now is wait and prepare for Jesus. I have a, a friend that I've known for many, many years. Several years ago, he and his wife went through a pretty big transition in their life. They, they had three young kids, and, and both the husband and wife were the part, a part of a church staff. He was a, a full-time minister, and she was part-time on the church staff working with kids. Well, they, they left those, those jobs and they moved and they got new jobs. They moved up to, to Boise and they began working in the tech industry. And they worked for the same company. It was kind of a high-stress, corporate, bottom-line environment. And my friend was telling me that, that one day he was called in to meet with his supervisor to discuss his future with the company. And in, in the midst of that conversation, my friend attempted to explain to his supervisor that, that his goals, their family goals, were really pretty quite simple. It was just to, to work, to make enough money to pay the bills, to live a simple life. They, they valued spending time with their children more than getting ahead, and they weren't too terribly concerned about moving up the corporate ladder, if you will, within the company. Really, they just wanted to make the house payment, 
keep the cars running, buy some groceries, pay the essential bills. And so he told the, the boss, this corporate leader, that honestly, that they really weren't looking to get ahead in the organization. And his, his boss's reply was, wow, that's really different. That's different than anything I've ever known. I'm completely unfamiliar with that kind of value structure. Just kind of blew him out of the water. But, you know, I admire my friend for his outlook on life. You see, if we Christians could just realize what we have already been blessed with. If we could take it to heart that God has already given us so much more than we could ever hope to collect or beg or borrow or earn in a thousand lifetimes. If we can understand that, then we can kind of opt out of the value system of this world. Some people call it the rat race. We can opt out of that because we can live contentedly understanding that we already have so much and really everything that we have and need pertaining to life and godliness. So sometimes it's difficult to try to communicate clearly, but understanding the gift of God's grace should really call all of our goals and values into question. The value system of this world says the accumulation of wealth and stuff is just about the most important thing in this life. The follower of Jesus should realize that wealth is merely a means to an end, a tool to be used in the service of God. The world says it's meaningful if you have status, position, but the Christian might consider life meaningful if they've raised faithful children or helping to raise faithful grandchildren. The world measures success by where you live, what you drive, how much you make. But the Christian who realizes the gift they've already been given realizes that those things measure nothing. Real success is measured by true values. The values of Jesus, loving God and loving others, helping others, investing in ministry work, using our time and our talent and our treasures as we spoke about last week and investing them into God's kingdom principles, values, and work. God has given us so much in Jesus and basically He's laid it out before us. And he says, there you go. There you go, kids. Have at it. Your eternal needs are met. Your biggest worry is already taken care of. And so now go. Go and serve me, God says. Serving others. Make me proud. As my child. In verse 9, Paul wraps up this little section. And he says, God is faithful. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, it doesn't matter what our heritage is, our genealogy, where we came from doesn't matter in the long run. It doesn't matter if others consider us a success. A value system bathed in grace sets the course of our life. And when we ask ourselves, am I wasting my life? Our answer should be 
that it is impossible to waste our lives in the service and fellowship of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Creator, our Master, our King. Let's pray together.